So today, February 15th, and there is a reason why I'm specifying the date. And that's because we have two wonderful guests today who write about the latest developments in the debt markets. And so it's important to flag the date that we're talking about, given that stuff is going to happen before we actually post this podcast. So our guests today are Jorgelina do Rosario and Karin Strohecker. I have probably mangled their names, which is embarrassing since both of them are old friends of ours who have many times over the past years helped us in understanding what is going on in the sovereign debt markets. We have been asking them to come on our podcasts individually or separately or in whatever way they can to talk about developments. But every time, because they are so busy writing for Reuters, we haven't been able to get them. So right now, in the midst of so much going on with Ghana, Sri Lanka, Argentina, Congo, and on and on and on, we're thrilled that we have them. And there was some possibility that we would postpone the podcast yet again. And uh, we have uh, coerced them into coming on. So Jorgelina and Karin, welcome to the podcast. We're so very delighted to have you on. Thank you very much for having us, Nito and Mark. It's lovely to be here. Well, we, we're, as I said, we are so thrilled. And our students regularly read your articles. I was rereading the articles, and I had asked my library to get me all of the recent articles and the librarians who were incredibly kind. And part of the reason I had to ask my library is because I've used up my free article quota on Reuters multiple times through multiple different websites. So I'm probably very much on Reuters' bad boy list. But <laughs> even the librarians were thrilled that you were coming on the podcast, as will our students be. Uh, but as a precursor to what I'm hoping we get to do today, we read your articles uh, regularly uh, because it tells us what is the latest that is going on. But we also always get the sense, and I know this from having talked to you, that there is so much more that is going on that the evil editors cut and don't allow you to put in. And that's really what we're hoping to ask you about today, the stuff that got left on the cutting room floor about what's really going on in a number of these high distressed scenarios that seem to be multiplying uh, around the world. So if you don't mind, one of your most recent pieces touches on a topic that we only discussed a short while ago with our friend Chelsea Delaney of the Wall Street Journal, which is about Ghana's domestic debt exchange. And 
while discussing it with Chelsea, we bewailed uh, the fact that this this debt exchange seemed to just be a complete disaster taking forever. It had already been attempted three or four times. Nobody seemed to really know how to get it done. And then there was this, to me, utterly bizarre plan to do it on a purely voluntary basis that I was convinced would doom it to failure. Uh, yet, I think your article reported that they got 80% pickup and were able to relatively successfully do an exchange that all the key players, such as the fund and the private creditors, are relatively happy with. But I'm hoping you can give us a little more color as to what's really happening with Ghana, with the domestic exchange, and what might happen next. Hi, so yes, it's, it's, it's Karen here. Thanks so much, me too. Um, and that's a very, very interesting question and a big topic that's kept Jelena and myself and the rest of the emerging markets, Reuters correspondents quite busy. Um, like you say, we finally, after actually five extensions, uh, Ghana seems to have gotten this debt restructuring, the domestic debt exchange, over the line. Um, we learned about this last night. Um, the success rate was 85%, according to authorities. So far, so good. But there's still quite a few details that remain unclear. So because we had so many iterations and changes, they have changed the terms for various groups of holders. And it's not quite clear which group of holders has accepted under which terms. And what that means is that we are not at this stage entirely clear how much of a fiscal impact this will really make. And of course, that is absolutely crucial. We need to know how much that domestic debt exchange is going to save Ghana, which will then allow you know, the IMF and, and, and the other creditors and the Eurobond holders to calculate what sort of a hit they would probably be expected to take on the external uh, commercial side. And so as we speak, there are still quite a few question marks on this. Um, but the other interesting bit, of course, is that I think domestic debt exchanges are something that we haven't seen in a while. Um, I think you were, you were mentioning Argentina earlier, and Helena, who's sitting here, here with me, is an expert on these things, so I'll let her elaborate on this a little bit later. But um, the, the debt restructurings that we are seeing at the moment, a lot of those have... Um, that that is significantly has a significant share in domestic bonds and so that question for those poorer countries that are under strain what they will do with their domestic bonds whether they need to restructure or not is one that is going to become more and more prominent and that's something we really haven't been used to as a discussion point in recent debt restructurings, we've been so focused on the external side, so focused on bilateral um, debt, so focused on you know, Chinese lending, but now all for a sudden those domestic markets are in play as well. And maybe to, to add to that, you mentioned that it, it was a voluntary exchange. Of course, once you actually get to a domestic debt restructuring, 
the, the massive amount of exposure within a country would be the local pension fund, funds, the local banks, and those politicians who are pushing for that debt exchange need to keep their local investors on board. That's absolutely crucial. If you do an external debt restructuring, you will not necessarily see domestic effects from that. If you do a domestic debt restructuring, you will see an effect from that. And in fact, we actually had already news out from Fitch today, the day after um, Ghana has announced that it's that exchange came over the line. And Fitch, uh, the ratings agency, has said that Ghana um, that Ghana's debt exchange will significantly weaken the bank's capitalization, um, so banks in Ghana, and that's going to have consequences of what regulators and what the government needs to do to ensure the stability and soundness of its own financial system. But I let Rachelina uh, speak a little bit more to that. Hi, me too. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having us. So, so yes. Um, I, I think that you do remember this big restructuring effort from Argentina in 2020, which also involved both, you know, FX and local currency debt. The case of Argentina, of course, is always a little bit different, has another condiment because, you know, the country has the experience of defaulting in debt and in debt restructuring as a consequence of being a um, zero defaulter. So in the 2020 restructuring, I think that the government had a correct approach of saying basically the debt has to be sustainable and it doesn't matter if it's local debt or foreign debt. And the way that Argentina, if we remember back then how they did things, they basically, you know, they tried to first negotiate with private creditors, overseas creditors, and then apply the same type of haircuts uh, to the local debt. So they try to ma maintain the same conditionalities. And what was also interesting in the 2020 um, debt restructuring for local debt in Argentina is that they introduced the collective action clause to local debt, right? So those clauses that basically mean that you need certain percentage of the bondholders to drag the rest of the creditors to a debt restructuring. Now it's being applied to the Ghana domestic debt. So at least we are seeing some positive news out of it. More countries applying these clauses to local debt, which will help debt restructuring efforts if necessary in, in the near future, right? Um, it's very interesting what, what Ghana did because um, Ghana is, you know, pushing for um, and um, to, to have um, the three billion um, IMF approval from the executive board. As Karen mentioned, negotiating with bilateral creditors at the same time, and uh, we have seen private overseas creditors saying to both. Zambia and Sri Lanka, formally and informally, you need to restructure or do some type of reprofiling on of your local debt, and that hasn't happened yet. So the fact that Ghana has basically, you know, secure staff level agreement with the IMF, and then as the next step, did this debt restructuring of the local debt is quite interesting, and I think it gives like 
it adds a little bit more pressure to the other countries to follow through. Well, it's interesting because you're highlighting the the different treatments that local law debt is getting, or at least uh, uh, the plan seems to have been quite different in places like Sri Lanka and places like Ghana. I, I wonder, um, before we leave Ghana and maybe move on to some of these other countries, I wonder if you have a sense of the market's likely reaction to the local law restructuring. And in particular, I'm interested in the, so as I understand it, the pension funds were essentially held out of the restructuring. And there were some early rumbles from uh, foreign bondholders in particular, complaining about the different and uh, they assumed better treatment that at least some of the local creditors would be getting. So I wonder if you have a sense of whether there are going to be negotiated negotiations continuing with the pensions in Ghana and also just what whether the external creditors really are likely to react positively to the development so far. Well, I think that first, the pension funds, we still haven't heard anything from the government side. We have been pushing for official comments and for information on what happened with the pension funds, which was a significant part of of the debt restructuring, of the local debt restructuring. So we still have no news about that. And it's something that we are following closely because that's also, that also added a layer of complexity to this local debt restructuring, right? Not only that they, it, they, it has been extended several times, which is pretty normal for you know, the restructuring processes to see several delays and tweaks to it, sweeteners and so on. But in this case, they're like dividing different types of creditors. So that is a little bit complicated. On the overseas creditor side maybe karen can jump in on it but from from my end we have seen a good reactions from you know the, the bonds trading on a positive uh level and then again you know then we can go to the numbers and crunch the numbers when we have all the research results from the local debt restructuring but it seems that the willingness from the government to get their hands on that rework of the local debt at least is a first good sign for for the overseas uh holders yeah, like Hoichelina uh, said, so we have seen uh, the day after um, that uh, domestic debt exchange result was finally announced, we have seen gains in the international bonds. But I think it's fair to say that the gains were um, cautiously optimistic. It was not like a massive jump you would expect where you go like, uh, you know, the external uh, bond orders were like, Phew, that means a much smaller hit than we thought we were going to get. Um, and yes, we, we still have a lot of, you know, math to do and numbers to get. And uh, the pensions, I think we understand the pension funds make up around 20% of the domestic bond holdings. Mm -hmm. So um, we said that's obviously a big chunk and we haven't had any news on that. Um, just to say, like, we are, you know, in the process, of course, of reaching out to everyone who does all these, who do all these bond calculations and, uh, you know, how they see that. And I think there's a lot of, like, uh, still waiting for details to be able to crunch the numbers going on. Um, 
Fitch originally did estimate that when when they first launched this uh, domestic debt exchange on the, on the very initial terms, they were actually saying that this would inflict an NPV loss on creditors of about 50%. And now they're saying this is really a very small reduction and what's happened in the end has changed um, the outcome quite a bit. You know, one point that uh, I wanna make before moving on to Sri Lanka and just to throw it out there because Mark and I spend so much of our time in the details of bond contracts, but also because this is a, an aspect that you are going to be familiar with from Argentina, which is our beloved uh, Paripasu uh, provision that everybody in Argentina knows about. It, Ghana's external debt, the, the foreign currency debt, has incredibly broad pari passu clauses, clauses that are unusual as, for example, compared to Argentina, they are unusual because they say to our reading, and Mark can correct me, that Ghana will treat all of its creditors, not just the foreign creditors, which is the typical version of the clause, equally. It will give everybody equal treatment, domestic and foreign. And if Ghana is going to try to give much better treatment to all of its domestic creditors or a subset of its domestic creditors, this sets up a potential legal challenge. And we have already seen that legal challenge happen in Sri Lanka. So this is not completely fictional and everybody in Argentina knows how much destruction this kind of legal challenge can bring. And at least to me as an outsider, it seems that the domestic exchange is going forward with everybody just saying a prayer that no strategic creditor is going to step in and say, hey, did you forget about my clause here? I'm going to sue and try to extract a premium. Now, I have heard both sets of stories from uh, people we know who hold these Ghanaian bonds. There are on the one set, the people who say, please don't bring up the Paripasu clause because we hope nobody else has read it. And then on the other hand, we hear people who say, I'm just waiting to use my clause if I don't get a good enough deal. And I just say that with the background that sometimes in these debt restructurings, it seems like they go ahead in order to deal with all of the political problems without thinking about what kind of contractual promises they agreed to and what kind of litigation is lying wait to undermine the entire structure. But I'm off my soapbox now. I just wanna wanted to, to flag that uh, and you guys can feel free to react or not. But what I really want us to talk about, speaking of Sri Lanka, where there is litigation going on, on Paripasu, where statements had been made that domestic creditors would get better treatment. And then immediately there was this Hamilton Bank uh, lawsuit. You had an article uh, very recently about how 
the Sri Lankan negotiations that seemed mired in quicksand have actually advanced, particularly the Paris Club seems to be willing to give uh, the IMF financial assurances, uh, which IMF needs in order to put their program in place, even though they, are, they have not been able to get satisfactory assurances from the Chinese. So I'm wondering if I, I couldn't get the full story from your article as to how it is that the Paris Club agreed to go forward, even though they're not happy with what they're getting from China, because aren't they afraid that China will get a much better deal and then they will get screwed? Well, everybody's shaking their heads with this, right? So at the beginning, it seems that Paris Club was in a wait and see position to see what China could bring to the table. And, you know, as Sri Lanka is a middle income country, they are not formally inside the common framework, but so far they seem to be playing under the common framework, common framework book. So what is really interesting is that the Paris Club had this, you know, we are going to wait first what China is going to do, but then we got the Chinese letters sent to Sri Lanka officials basically saying that there was going to be a dead moratorium. And something really interesting from our perspective as journalists covering the news on a daily basis is that we always ask for Chinese officials for comment, right? It's part of our daily job if we're going to write a story to ask for comment, right? So when the Reuters team got the letter, got also confirmation from the Chinese government that the letter existed and it was real and the content was accurate. So I think that the fact that China was providing only a death moratorium of two years, 2022 and 2023 to be specific to Sri Lanka and making no reference to the death sustainability analysis of the IMF, making no reference of any further debt relief, basically saying, you have this now, we'll talk about this later. Well, that brought a lot of public attention to it. And I think that might force the Paris Club to say, okay, I need to support the country in, in, this, in this context, right? We have to remember that though Sri Lanka has a staff level agreement with the IMF for $3 billion, they still don't have the money me to a mark, you know, as you said, they need the financing assurances from all these bilateral lenders to move on and to have an executive board approval and, you know, to, to kick off these burdens, right? And that IMF deal will bring more money from other uh, multilateral lenders as well. So for now, it seems that the Paris Club might be a little bit forced to do it right now and then wait and see if Sri Lanka could get anything else from the Chinese lenders. It doesn't seem to be happening, but maybe we are surprised, right? And this has begun to bring questions on, you know, is the IMF ready to apply the lending into arrears policy with this specific non-common framework case, right? Um, Sri Lanka right now is not paying to China, it's not paying Chinese loans, they are deeply in that distress, of course. Um, it's hard for them to buy fuel, to buy medicine, so imagine paying debt. Um, 
At this point, it's still not clear if this is going to happen, the lending into arrear policies, but it's a possibility, it's there. And I, I think uh, that everybody's talking about that right now in the Sri Lanka case, right? It's like the yeah, next definitely. step. Yeah, what was also super, super interesting for us on uh, Sri Lanka was actually that India came out. Yes. And did uh, publish, or we saw its, its financing assurances. And we didn't just see financing assurances saying, you know, what, hereby we support your efforts, but they were very, very detailed. They actually basically outlined on what we think are the goalposts for the DSA, which none of us had really seen before in the public eye. So there were two things. One, one is like China sort of in this context didn't quite deliver what people were possibly hoping for. Um, or other creditors were hoping for. And that puts, like Heuchelina says, the Paris Club in a very tricky position. Um, but also, like, India talking very openly about what the agreement is on what debt sustainability would basically look like for Sri Lanka and opening up that discussion, um, you know, that we now can talk to Eurobond holders and other parties about and say, like, do you agree with those numbers? Because normally, you know, the DSA, that debt sustainability analysis that comes from the IMF, is like a very close kept secret for a long, long time. So we're often left guessing as reporters and often, you know, the Euro bondholders we talk to, the, the international bondholders, are also left guessing what, what is it exactly that the IMF is asking for? And in this case, we've actually seen India come out and, and throw it wide open. Well, it's interesting. And this... Um... I guess I don't know whether to view what's going on in Sri Lanka as a sign of progress or as a symptom of the deeper problem that we've seen in all of these restructurings, whether they're under the common framework or not, which is that intercreditor rivalries seem to be so acute that nothing is getting done. It's just foot dragging for month after month after month. And it seems to me that you know that so if the IMF goes ahead and applies its lending into arrears policy and disperses the funds, then you know, one potential scenario that we see down the road is that China, I think it's Exim in Sri Lanka case, mm-hmm. winds up getting paid a disproportionate amount, sort of confirming the worst fears of other bilateral and certainly private commercial creditors. And I have to wonder. If that comes to pass, what is that going to do for the future restructurings that everyone is expecting? It's going to confirm everyone's worst fears about um, maybe China in particular, but about uh, creditors being treated differently in this um, in this environment. So, should we? Is that something that we should really be concerned about here? I think so, yes. I mean, this has been a big concern, not only for other bilateral creators, but also for the private bondholders and for the IMF itself, right? We have to remember that this group of 20 platforms known as Common Framework was released after the pandemic hit, and now we are in 2023. And the only case we have been seeing resolved is Chad, with no debt relief at all. Right. <laughs> no debt relief at all. So then after that was announced uh, late last year, 
everybody kept, kept telling us, okay, Zambia is the, the test case now, right? And we had supposedly uh, financing assurances from China for Zambia, which we haven't seen. We haven't seen that letter, it's not public. And uh, it makes you wonder, right? Where is all this, where all, all of this is heading? And at the same time, it's kind of like the countries are trapped between, you know, these lenders who want or don't want to give financing assurances to the country under certain conditions. And the IMF saying, okay, until I get these conditions, you cannot have the IMF money which from an IMF perspective is totally, you know, reasonable. They need these financing assurances to uh, make sure that the program they are, you know, preparing for the country um, can be achieved, but at the same time, they have a mandate to help countries in that distress in crystal complicated situations. So when these programs start to drag so long, it makes you wonder if they had to basically reshuffle all the common framework and how to do that, right? Because it's complicated. It's no easy. You're bringing um, bilateral creditors such as China to the table for the first time. It's going to be challenging, yes. But at the same time, we haven't seen major tricks to this big structure slash platform. So, yeah, it brings more confusion, I believe. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, we're operating in sort of in a debt restructuring system that was sort of emerged at a time when the whole creditor structures were much easier to deal with. Um, and now, of course, China has emerged as the biggest bilateral lender and Chinese lending is often not entirely clear under which terms or who the party is or you know what what is at stake exactly and that poses a whole new set of challenges and i think everyone acknowledges that what we're going to actually see now is um that next week at this point next week we will have the g20 meeting the first uh, central bank governors and finance ministers in bangalore in india and part of that will actually be a debt round table. And that debt round table is designed to bring together China, uh, Paris Club members, other big bilateral lenders, but also, you know, um, the private creditors and everyone else pretty much involved in, uh, in that process and to hammer out some of those underlying fundamental principles to operate going forward. And it will also include the, um, uh, the countries in question. I think Sri Lanka is going to be there, Ghana is going to be there, Zambia is going to be there. So that should provide another forum where these things can be discussed. However, as, as, as we've discussed many times, uh, Mito and, and with Hoyelina as well, for many of these countries, time is really of the essence, you know, and a lot of analysts and watchers keep on saying, well, it's great that we have another round table where we talk about things, but what we really actually need to say, see is action going forward. And whether that will happen after this round table, um, we'll need to see how much progress is going to be made. So we, this has been so incredible and I can't wait to read what you write about the Bangalore uh, meetings and 
whether or not there is progress there. I'm hoping for it, but I, I worry that we don't really have a a good solution to get out of the current quicksand in these negotiations, but maybe somebody has a clever solution who's going to be at the meeting and then others will accept it. But I want to throw out two questions. We're at close to the end of our time, so maybe uh, you can choose to answer either one or one of you can choose one and the other the other or or we can uh, talk about something else but we really only have time for uh, a couple of responses and two questions that I, I wanted to ask you about is one connecting to something that you had written regarding our favorite country Argentina and its debt buyback we are seeing in analyst reports that there's a lot of popularity these days for debt buybacks and debt buybacks are being touted as a way of assuring the market that things are wonderful and the market should like the country's debt. Now, of course, the market loves debt buybacks because if the debt is trading at some low price and your country says, we'll buy it back for a higher amount, I, if I were an investor, I'd, I'd be thrilled and I'd say debt buybacks are fantastic. But if the country really is in trouble, this seems incredibly stupid. So I'm just, I'm wondering about whether you are seeing a lot more talk of debt buybacks and the logic of the Argentine debt buyback because Argentina does seem to be in a little bit of trouble. Uh, of course, it is perpetually in a little bit of trouble. And, and the other question I have, and this relates to work that Mark and I have been doing, is, and you mention it in uh, your piece on the Congo recently, which is the Congo is uh, trying to raise more capital. And one of the things they're looking to is uh, let's issue some green bonds. Let's do some environmentally friendly stuff so that more investors will give us money. And I'm wondering what, so in the midst of all of these debt crises, there is also a big push towards environmentally friendly deals. And is that playing any role? Are countries able to raise more money Poor countries, are they able to raise more money by clothing themselves in green colors? So I know I'm throwing out a lot of stuff for our last question and answer, but whatever you tell us, we're so grateful. Yes, of course, on, on Argentina. So basically what the government did was announce a buyback of up to 1 billion in nominal value of uh, the debt. It basically was short-term global 2029 and 2030. Of course, as you said, me too, a lot of bondholders were really happy for the gains. And at the same time, you know, Massa, the economy ministry announced it in, instead of doing it quickly, right? So it, it gave a lot of people a lot, a, lot, a lot of time to make those profits as well. Um, it's really interesting for me because when this happened, my first question on the top of my head was, why will the IMF let Argentina do a buyback program when you know 
it owes Argentina, uh, sorry, it owes the IMF $45 billion of a failed 2018 program, refinanced again <laughs> two years later, and with very scarce international research, right? So you want to give a good sign out to the market with a buyback, but you also need to be sure that doing this buyback, you are basically able to, you know, have a sustainable path for your debt, have good enough reserves to pay for your imports. It's not the case of Argentina right now. Um, so gross reserves stand at around $43 billion, but net levels are estimated to be near $6 billion. And, you know, the central bank is still losing money, right? So basically, my first question is that, right? Why did the IMF let Argentina do this? I know it's a small portion of, of the debt. It, it's not going to change things. But for me, it will be it will have been good to have a message from the IMF saying you cannot get your way with everything you want to do in this life, right? Um, so Argentina right now is dealing with 100% of, of inflation, as we know. Uh, scars in in research after bond after the bond buy uh, bond buyback as well. The IMF basically said it worries. It, it, it's something that worries the IMF, but at the same time they let Argentina do it. So um, for me, it seems like they want to send a positive message. And at the same way, these short term bonds are really basically linked to the parallel effects exchange in Argentina, right? Uh, so they also tried to do a little bit of, of an operation at the same time to control the parallel effects rate. Um, it was responsible from my point of view. I think we, we have made it very clear in our stories. Um, it might have been good for some holders, but in this context, um, it might, you know, led to, 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 the, to a different uh, result. And, um... I'm just going to quickly budge in on the question of green bonds in emerging markets because that's been quite a hot topic. I'll keep it short for all of you. But yes, we have spoken to Congo's um, finance minister who said they were looking to issue such a bond this year. But I guess there's a few things to think about. One of them is that if you're trying to do green bonds, you often try as a government or as a company actually to attract credit to attract investors who you haven't spoken to already, who, um, you know, firmly are oriented along ESG principles and look at that very closely. Of course, a lot of these countries would like to issue green bonds don't actually have green bond frameworks and investors who are really concerned about ESG might often um, need that sort of framework and need that sort of supervision and need that sort of reassurance that that really the money is really going where it should be and so there's a few obstacles to overcome and um but that's definitely a topic i mean absolutely a very very big issue and one a lot of these countries like congo but but many many of the african nations and asian nations have you know crucial coral reefs have rainforests that absolutely need protection and would be ideal uh, for that sort of project. And that's definitely something we have got another COP summit coming up later this year, mm -hmm. and we're expecting this to be a very, very big topic there again.
But so far, the framework in many of these countries isn't there yet to allow a big uptake and big issuance under those programs. Well, Karen and Jorgelina, thanks very much to you both. As Mitu said at the beginning, we're recording this on February 15th. I suspect it'll post in a week or maybe a little bit more. And so much is going to have happened, I'm sure, between now and then. Um, we'll keep reading to keep learning from you uh, as we go forward. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you before too long about all of the the future developments. Thanks so much for, for coming to join us. Thank you.